everybody, and welcome back to Critically Reclaimed, a podcast. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I don't have a clever nickname. I don't need one. Good. And, uh, yeah, this is the podcast right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, where we review older movies on various streaming services that often get overlooked in favor of whatever the hell is new. Uh, and all of the films and, and programs that we watch on Critically Reclaimed are selected by our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, we have a poll pretty much every week uh, to decide what we're going to talk about next. Every poll features uh, two films or programs that Whitney hasn't seen, two that I haven't seen, and ultimately the winner is voted upon by, again, our patrons. And we try to switch up the streaming service, and this time we're going to the the wonderfully esoteric world of Ovid. Uh, Ovid is a streaming service that fo- fe- uh, focuses on art house, international, museum piece movies, uh, the movies that make the Criterion go, nerds! <laughs> uh, and uh, because uh, we're, we're here with Ovid, we're here uh, uh, talking about an Ovid selection, we needed to bring in our Ovid expert, uh, People, friends, companions, listeners, uh, once again, welcome the illustrious B. Peterson. Oh, hello. I didn't see you there. <laughs> I was too busy reading my copy of Nick Pinkerton's book on Simon Lang's Goodbye Dragon Inn. Excuse me. Um, Thank, uh, thanks. <laughs> thanks for joining us, B. Happy to have you. What if we oh, have yeah, no problem. Okay. I've got nothing to do on, on uh, September 31st at 11.40 p.m., um, anyway, or September 30th. There is no September 31st. I've got nothing to do on September 31st because it doesn't exist. Anyway, um, all right. Uh, yeah, we're here to talk about Ovid. Um, Ovid.tv is a, I'll pro at this point, I'll probably just call it my favorite streaming service. Um, it's, yeah, it's got the stuff that, that only plays in museums. The only plays in museums for a day. The stuff that won't even go to museums because it's too, it's too out there. It's too it's, arty yeah. for museums. Yeah. yeah. Think, on, think on that. It's a thinker. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can't. And I managed to convince Whitney to convince William to do a, an, another episode of the uh, what was called the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, now called Critically Reclaimed. Um, great title. Um, and to do an episode on Ovid because the last time you had, you had done, you have done an episode on Ovid before. And the film that you did talk about then was the watermelon woman, which I would argue is one of the best films ever made. And I'm really glad that you saw it. However, that's probably one of the most mainstream films on Ovid. And so I was like, what, let's try it again. And let's go for something that's a bit more in the vein of the stuff, the type of stuff that Ovid has to offer. And so, yeah, and we're here and we're, we're talking about, uh, similar to what we talked about uh, last week, um, Whit- uh, uh, Whitney and I, on our podcast that we do, the whole reason I'm here, all about Ovid, uh, we're talking about a collection of short films, kind of. It's a bit more complicated than that. But yeah, that's what we're here to do. Yeah, we gave you a whole bunch of, uh, of options, and the one that you chose was actually a documentary featuring other movies. It's actually a little weird. Uh, But we're going to be talking about some of the earliest productions of Shakespeare ever recorded for cinema back in the early, early, early silent era. Uh, It's a little documentary called Silent Shakespeare, brought to you by the British Film Institute. Yeah. Can't really do a clip for this one. Not really, no. Play an audio clip of the silent movies. It'll be great. Yeah, we're, we'll, we'll just play the sound. It'll sound of like silence. linoleum knife when Dave has one of his pauses. <laughs> oh, uh, but yeah, no, and this is this isn't a documentary with like a lot of talking heads giving you context. It's a documentary that's basically just here's a bunch of clips. Yep, and then show. they show us a bunch of clips. Everything oh. from what is considered the earliest production of Shakespeare uh, on film, which is weirdly enough an adaptation of King John. Uh, and then uh, we see a bunch of uh, uh, segments from film adaptations of films like Hamlet, Othello, a Midsummer Night's Dream, Romeo and Juliet, A, Mid- uh, a Winter's Tale, uh, and uh, and the like. Whitney, talk. <laughs> well, um, 
the reason we're not getting sort of proper releases of all of these films is that these films have degraded to the point where uh, large chunks of them are lost. Uh, we only have a few uh, surviving clips of of these early Shakespeare adaptations, and you know Shakespeare has, as we see, has been sort of infecting the the medium of cinema since the very beginning. Uh, and yeah, the earliest Shakespeare adaptation. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why they chose King John. King John has never been like one of the more celebrated plays, but okay. Uh, yeah, that one was adapted in 1899. Uh, this is a bit of trivia I actually knew uh, because I'm such a Shakespeare nerd. I would go on IMDb to see what, what's like the earliest Shakespeare production I could see. And that's where I discovered this 1899 production of King John, which I wasn't able to nerd. find anywhere. Yeah, you know what? Fine, fine. I'll take it. <laughs> But yeah, uh, Shakespeare uh, has been uh, interested in, uh, in interesting to the world of cinema even before there was sound to record his poetry. Uh, we get intertitles yeah. with little tiny clips of the dialogue, but the the fascinating thing about Shakespeare is his stories read even mm-hmm. without a even without the poetry in there. Uh, you you take out the nuance and you get the gist. And there's one really funny one here where. Um, it's a version of Hamlet, and they show in the title card, to be or not to be, that is the question. And then there's a solid, like, 60 seconds of a guy just at a table just really thinking. <laughs> yeah! Hmm. And then he kind of... Yeah, and you can see the king in the background yeah. with his hand in the curtain. Yeah, but... and he's like, comes to a conclusion, and he goes, nah, nah, not to be, that's the answer. And then he thinks about it for a minute, and I'm like... Well, maybe to be, I guess. <laughs> and it's really kind of funny. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's weird. When when we started making uh, movies, the earliest movies were mostly documentary footage. People were just putting the camera in front of whatever they could find. And the the stage, you know, to stage something, to fake something, the only analog we had was theater. So it made sense to go to the theater for inspiration. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the early silent narrative films were essentially pointing a camera at a literal stage or a figurative stage or a stage they made wherever they could make it. And uh, then that was the style of acting that we dealt with. And um, yeah, it's actually interesting to see how many of these uh, early silent Shakespeare movies are not so stagey. And the Midsummer Night's Dream uh, film that we see here is actually like Mm -hmm. filmed entirely in a, in a wood somewhere some mm. someone's backyard or some forest yeah, wherever they wherever they could film that production is from 1909 and uh I, I i've always felt that a midsummer night's dream while it works fine on stage it is maybe the most for lack of a better term cinematic of shakespeare's plays just because there's so much magic and so many different locales it makes much more sense to film it um mm. and you know if you have modern there's so much, there's so much more you can do in film that you just literally can't do mm. in the theater there's some special effects yeah. that don't play so well. Um, you know, when uh, Bottom the Weaver has his head turned into the head of an ass, it's just like this paper mache monstrosity with the jaw is on a string and the actor is just standing there pulling on the string to make the jaw operate. <laughs> uh, it, it's pretty amusing. Yeah. One of the things interesting, and, and, and I, I couldn't quite tell this is true, but uh, because, you know, it's it's a lot of these, I will say this, a lot of these early silent movies were cleaned up pretty darn good. Like, a lot of them look really mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. Like, they did a really good job of preserving them. Others are in worse shape, but they, they're as cleaned up as they can be. Um, but I couldn't quite tell. So the plot of A Midsummer Night's Dream uh, revolves largely around uh, a, a fairy king and queen, uh, Oberon and Titania, uh, and they have a feud, and that feud sort of bleeds over into this, uh, you know, quartet of lovers who are in the middle of a whole thing which isn't really important but uh what's interesting about this one is that oberon in this particular version of a midsummer night's dream is either played by a woman or is played in a very effeminate manner and Hmm. that was an interesting choice and i actually thought that was kind of an exciting take on it yeah oberon and titanian are are typically like yin and yang one is is Titania is typically very feminine, whereas Oberon is uh, often depicted as being very masculine. Yeah. 
Right. In in that vein, um, one of the most striking uh, excerpts of a film that we see in in Silent Shakespeare for me was I think it was the nineteen, depending on where you look, the nineteen twenty or nineteen twenty one uh, adaptation of Hamlet um, that stars um, Aston Nielsen. Um, as Hamlet, um, who in the this version of the play um, was, you know, born a woman, but then raised as a man, so that so that she could inherit the throne. And we see that there's actually a uh, almost twelfth night, if you will, uh, a longing romance going on between Hamlet and Horatio. Um, yeah. And so that was. That for me was one of the most. I think the most interesting, striking thing to see was like, oh, some because Twelfth Night is, like, is arguably the queerest of. I don't know. To me, anyway, the queerest of, if, of Shakespeare's oh, works. Oh, definitely. And, On the surface, and, it is certainly. Yeah. The the yeah, it's it's interesting to me because I feel like there's this general tendency now to, for people to be like, oh, I can't believe you changed. I got an argument today on Twitter. It was just like, yeah, I can't believe they changed the te- like. The, the this adaptation of Venom so much and I'm like really <laughs> fucking really but like is it but so here, precious but like it, right oh like God. I I grew up with Venom you know what Venom was Venom was a superhero costume machine mm-hmm. that Spider Man used wrong and ended up with the wrong costume and now that costume has its own movie that's a weird thing I don't mind you changing it they were taking these incredibly bold completely revisionist ideas about Shakespeare a long time ago. Oh yeah. They've been staged so many times that just to come up with this new gimmick for it, a new angle, a new focus, uh, was just something you did because it's been staged so often. Mm -hmm. And if they, if they'd done this now, I mean, this exact same adaptation idea where it's this, it's, it's a very different version of Hamlet. Uh, you know that that would be, on Fox News, and they would be talking about how dare they, and mm-hmm. it's this sort of thing that's un- fundamentally ridiculous because we have been playing with the classics and playing with adaptations for the sake of wouldn't it be interesting? Let's let's take a let's take a crack at it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Forever, and it's I, really good to have I, that that sort of a proof of it, you know. Right, because by the time that these that these films were coming out, the plays were already three hundred years old, um, and so yeah, they were they were old news back when these movies were being made, and so they can play with them, and they can play with them however they want. And specifically in terms of adaptation, um, this is you know getting into the the technicalities of how movies were being made that made back then. A lot of films um, were around this time were only one or two reels long. And so you can't fit all five acts of Shakespeare into one or two reels. Um, and so how do you adapt a five act play into, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes. And they would, they just did it. They would cut yeah. stuff. You um, got You got to be really, really liberal with your editing and you got to be willing to condense things and cut characters and cut whole plot points and subplots. And, you know, it hurts my soul, but it's just, mm-hmm. it's a practical concern, isn't it? Yeah, although yeah. I've noticed the um, the way a popular audience responds to popular art uh, differs depending on what's being adapted. You, William, we were talking about how people are incensed that they changed certain details about the character of Venom. What was, you know, Venom was invented in the late 80s and yeah, it was a Spider-Man costume and yet people are... Uh, up in arms about mm. fealty. I, I noticed this uh, around the time the Harry Potter uh, books were being adapted to film. Uh, people were uh, happy that they were being so slavishly, fiercely uh, loyal to the actual source material. But at the same I, time, I got in a fight uh, with a guy once who was like, he was furious. He was furious uh-huh. that the Dementors in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban could fly. Oh, they don't fly. In he the was books? like, they cannot do that. <laughs> and I was like, "This is the hill we're gonna die on." Uh, me- meanwhile, you know, this isn't like, this isn't even like some iconic like classic monster that they oh. changed or anything like that. They, they just they literally made this up like a year ago. <laughs> like, 
You can change it again. <laughs> Meanwhile, in in yeah, I mean, 20- as Rowling will would go on to show that you can just change stuff apparently and take it as no, this was the intent all along. Sure. Oh well, yeah. That whole <laughs> Dumbledore was always gay, right? right? Hermione was totally. black, right? These what? are these are things. But meanwhile, you go to, uh, like, in 2010, uh, Tim Burton made a film called Alice in Wonderland, based on the novels by Lewis Carroll, but not at all. They redefined everything, and people seem to be okay with that. It's like, we already had the baseline reading, now it's time to play, and nobody was up in arms about them changing that book. Uh, And I feel that's sort of been our attitude about Shakespeare. Shakespeare's been with us for so long that we're willing to, as audience members, accept uh, really broad adaptations so long as certain beats are adhered to. And the certain beats that we have to adhere to to make a Shakespeare adaptation acceptable, for lack of a better word, uh, is those story beats, the things that can read in a silent short with no dialogue mm-hmm. whatsoever. Uh, and now that can... there are, and now that we have dialogue, you at least have to get hit the main lines. Like, you can imagine... Can you imagine doing a Hamlet where the only thing you cut was the to be or not to be speech? Oh, wouldn't that be, be something? Like, unthinkably weird. Or the Yorick bit? Yeah, like, you just you, you could cut that. You don't really need that to tell the story. But everyone expects that. It would be weird if you didn't put it in there. I would love to see a production of Hamlet where, like, Hamlet's handed the skull. It's like, and th- this, sir, was Yorick's skull, the king's jester. Huh. Okay. Oh, look, there comes Ophelia. Like, <laughs> there's no speech. Cups it over his shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> Whatevs. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so it's cool to see those kinds of, like, daring adaptations this early in cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually really fun to see some of the early attempts at visual effects. There's a lot of superimpositions. Uh, there's this mm-hmm. one really cool kind of flying effect that they use with, like, kind of like a translucent cylinder. That was really neat. Oh, or to, um, to show that, like, Puck was soaring over the world. They, yeah, that They superimposed really an actor that was cool. who was, yeah, like, was suspended from wires over, yeah, this sort of, like, sphere with a map, pa- or this cylinder with a map painted on it. And they would just rotate it underneath the actor, and it just looked like they were flying over uh, yeah. the uh, the countryside. Yeah, it was really cool looking. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't look real, but it looks really trippy and neat. Yeah, um, there's a lot of I love tinting. seeing a lot of the... And yeah, hand coloring. There's a lot of color films in here. There's a really wonderful. Uh, well, well, I think there's only there's there's King Lear, and there I, there might be one other one, but I only remember I seeing think, two I think, bits with color. Oh, well, there was also a, a, uh, Merchant, a, a of Merchant of Venice, Venice that was yeah, well. Merchant of Venice that was also in. That's color. right. And and people don't realize this, and this is something that I even I only just realized how pervasive it was. But colorized uh, uh, silent films were actually very common. Oh yeah, uh, oh, yeah. it was done after the fact, but a lot of the times those the color didn't survive history because it just got scraped off or rubbed off over the years, and the original intent for the tintings or the original uh, colorizations uh, could be lost, and now all that we really have is the black and white version. Uh, right. So it's it's there's there's it's it's exciting to see the colorized versions survive. Mm. Uh, I actually really like the aesthetic of colorized black and white, if it's intentional. If it's not, obviously, I I don't approve. But the actual overall look at it, there's something just, like, kind of beautifully false about it. Mm. You know? It's like, it's just weirdly painted on, you know, like a living painting. It's really neat. Yeah, no, the, there's a shot, uh, I think the first color shot that we see in, of the first excerpt of of the King Lear, I, I I think it's from 1913 or around there. Um, but we see an excerpt of King Lear and it's, yeah, it's everything like, it looks like maybe it was an early attempt at, you know, trying to shoot on color film because Mm. it is that either that, or it is incredibly, incredibly detailed, um, like hand, like painting Mm -hmm. and tinting because like, that would be what it was. The bushes are different from the walls, which are different from all the different pieces of clothing. Like it's bare, it's incredibly detailed and it's yeah. Like stuff like that is just pretty stunning to see. Um, I'm noticing that we're talking a lot about the Shakespeare-ness of this and we're not really talking about the movie that we watched because the movie that we watched is pretty, I'd argue that it's, it's pretty weird 
Um, yeah, how they presented this. Yeah, what when I they... first, when I saw this is this spoiler alert. This is my selection, uh, and I thought it sounded really really neat to watch some old Shakespeare shorts or whatever survived of them. And I was really surprised to discover that the presentation wasn't here's all that we have left of King John or here's all that we have of this Hamlet adaptation or whatever. Uh, instead they decided to lump all of them together sort of thematically by content. So here's all the visual effects stuff. Here's all the scenes where people bow or curtsy. Mm. Uh, Here's all of the more famous lines. Um, A lot of them are generally presented in chronological order. So it feels as though you're watching these like parallel productions of Shakespeare, but a lot of them are not. And, it's kind of an interesting overview, but it's really frustrating if you actually wanted to see the films. Right. Well, I, I think this is a good way to go about it because, like I said, there are only pieces of a lot of these things. We don't have all of um, most of these. Some of them are really badly degraded. You can see a lot of damage to the film. All of them are very scratched. Um, some are really artfully scratched. I think it was um, a, a production of The Tempest where they scratched the film at an angle, so it looks like it was raining. The scratches looked like, uh, like, yeah, that was cool. Like raindrops, yeah. that was really cool. Um, there's a lot of like forced perspective stuff, but um, it is frustrating that they're not putting all of the bits of the same plays together. Like, here's all of the Hamlets in one spot. That's kind of what I expected, but at the same time, we don't know which pieces of which Hamlets are surviving. So if they put all of the pieces of all the Hamlets together, you might be watching the same scene four times in a row, and that would get mm-hmm. a little grating after a while. So I'm actually well, glad that they took a little bit more of, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of the MTV montage approach to all of these clips. They had all of these things together. They tried to find some sort of thematic link of clips that they had and uh, put them together. Now, this is going to play a lot better, of course, if you're intimately familiar with all of the plays, so you know exactly which scene is being presented at which time. Uh, yeah, because there's no context provided. There's yeah. no additional information uh, to guide you. And I think that's, I think, the biggest flaw here is I actually think it would have been better to have a talking head or two uh, just to sort of just set up what we're watching uh, give a look. Here's like, hey, here's this one Hamlet from so and so, and here's what's so special about it, and here you go. And I think that actually, I mean, again, it's a documentary. We're not fooling anybody. We know we're here to learn a bit about history. I think by let it, they're letting it play with minimal context, as though we were actually watching the movies, but we're not. So a little bit more of a guiding hand. That doesn't have to be super obtrusive. I don't need to talk over the footage, but a little bit more of a guiding hand would have been more engaging. And I think it would have been more inviting to people who don't have King John memorized. Hmm. Right. So this is, this is my thing with silent Shakespeare. Um, I think that this is a pretty, I think that this is a, a very interesting film, a very uh, in, engaging and valuable film. Um, for those who, like we've said, are intimately fa- familiar with Shakespeare, who know what they, who know what scene is playing when we see it, hmm. um, for people who are more interested in the silent cinema aspect of this, or who, for those who are less knowledgeable about Shakespeare, like speaking for myself, I am not. I am a fan of Shakespeare. I am not an expert on Shakespeare. I know Macbeth and Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet and um, Twelfth Night, but I haven't read Othello. Haven't read any of the Henrys or Johns. Um, and <laughs> well, there's only so one John. Watching but... this, okay. Yeah. So, and I don't. I I couldn't tell you that. Um, and so, and so watching this for me was kind of. It was. I'll admit it, it. Was it was it was. I was a little frustrated with the way they presented it because I how they how they do it is they structure it with five acts and with a with a prologue and an epilogue, and in the prologue we get this little bit from an adaptation of A Winter's Tale where we actually get to see uh, Will, uh, someone an actor playing William Shakespeare, um, who bookends I'm assuming the film of A Winter's Tale by let me tell you this A Winter's Tale, mm-hmm. and then we get 
and then we get the movie. And so, and then we go into Act One. And Act One is all about the artifice, about the special effects. Act Two is all about the spectacle. Here are the big scenes. We get to see a big battle happen in Macbeth, like in a forest with a bunch of people on horses and swords, and it's really quite exciting. Um, we get uh, Act Three is about dramatis personae. We got to get close-ups for the first time, essentially, mm-hmm. in Shakespeare history. Because um, previous to that, it was all one angle. It was just wherever you happened to be sitting in the theater. Um, we get Act 4 is about performance, which is about how the performance has changed for the camera, um, how they got a bit subtler and they mm-hmm. got a bit, they got, you know, a, they adapted for the camera. And then uh, Act 5 is famous scenes, um, which is a, a montage of all, like, you know, the big scenes from all the all of the scenes that we know from Shakespeare that people, local lines that people can quote. And then we get an epilogue where it's about, um, uh, Stratford upon Avon, like all or all of the stuff about you know the town where Shakespeare grew up and all that stuff, and it was it was frustrating um, for me to watch. Just kind of like okay, I'm taking I I I don't know what is being presented all the time, and so and with the amount of essentially the zero context that we're being being given as to what I'm watching, it feels like. You're just interested in, you're just interested in appealing to those who are huge fans of Shakespeare and experts on Shakespeare, and you're almost kind of patronizing the silent cinema aspect of this. It's like, oh look, isn't this neat? They made films before they could talk, and like, oh, and here's here they could do special effects back then. And, oh look at that, they could do, they could use horses. How cute! And it, I we weren't actually you know being encouraged to engage with look at all of the advanced filming techniques that they were using we we aren't give, being given any of that information just oh look how cute that they were that they were making silent movies of this stuff too well i, I and and again i feel like an additional smattering of context would help but i'm interrupting whitney sorry well i i i think if you were to add some context you'd have a really interesting documentary film and they would show these clips yeah. and you'd be able to sort of appreciate them uh, within the context of a documentary, but it's clear that the makers of Silent Shakespeare are trying to get us to engage more directly with the films themselves. And uh, if you were to add all of this extra context, it would do something that I think is uh, kind of kind of detrimental to the enjoyment of silent cinema, and that's trying to pile too much context onto it. It's it's actually a lot well, more. Said, an I'm not saying I want too much context. Well, what I'm saying is, there's, when we when we deal with silent film, there's a tendency for us to see it as very far away and very alien. A lot of conversations about silent yeah. cinema refer to it as kind of this former era. And you watch a lot of these silent films, there's no sound, but they're just as engaging and exciting as modern films. Uh, you know, there, there may not be you know, CGI or a lot of camera movement, because cameras weighed 4,000 pounds back in 1911. But it's... It's certainly possible to sit down, pop in a silent movie, and just enjoy it. And I think that's what the filmmakers of this are trying to do. Here is a film. Here's what it looks like. Look at the characters. Look at the acting. Just absorb. Let it wash over you. Enjoy what is here, rather than intellectualize it and put yourself at kind of a distance. Uh, we're not mm-hmm. distanced from this at all. We are being encouraged to engage very directly with what's going on. And I think Shakespeare is so familiar a presence in Western literature that even if we're not experts in you know every scene that happens in King John, for instance, we know what happens in the Scottish play. We know what happens in Hamlet. We know what happens in A Midsummer Night's Dream enough to understand the context of some of these important scenes. Uh, there's a, a really wonderful uh, sequence from Macbeth where we get to see uh, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth murdering the king while the guards are sort of asleep in the foreground. And the two Macbeths are, like, incredibly animated. They're moving around a lot, and you know, we sneak into the back of the room and we see the stabbing happening. We see her uh, wipe the blood on her dress. There's a lot of really uh, exciting, uh, almost comedic, really horrific things happening all at once. I feel like if we had a critic or a scholar sort of put that into context with us, we'd just sort of rub our chin and say, mm, yes, very good, and take the scholar's word for it. 
rather than being asked to sort of draw our own conclusions about Shakespearean cinema. Whitney, I'm really, really glad that you said all that. And I think that was really, really, uh, you know, thoughtful and apt. And uh, I really but... wish that had been in the documentary. <laughs> right. I think, but I think everything you said is apt. And I think it's the sort of thing where, again, you're making, there are still assumptions being made of the audience that they are that they feel equipped to watch. I know people who don't feel equipped to watch silent movies. They feel like they don't know the language. Right. Um and I know people who don't feel equipped to watch uh, Shakespeare because Shakespeare can be really dense. It's full of poetry and metaphor, some of which is a little esoteric and it helps to be very well read and to really know the depth of the material. Um and I and again, I'm not asking for too much context. I'm not asking for the documentary to be about the context, but I do think that a little Turner Classic Movies, let me set up this clip for you. Let me tell you a little bit about this production of Hamlet, or let me tell you a little bit about how cool like colorization of what it would... I, I just feel like a smidge of that mm. would have made this documentary more inviting because this is not a documentary that is telling a narrative. This is an educational documentary. This is an informative documentary. And I'm I don't I'm not super concerned about you being didactic here. I think that's why we're here. Uh-huh. So for me, I would like a little bit more. Do I want too much more? Of course not. I don't want it to overwhelm anything. I agree. I think the the film should take precedence, but I think even me, someone who's already like knows a lot about these plays, there's still stuff like I have unanswered questions about some of these movies. I would love to know more context here. Could you you're not gonna tell me anymore. Oh. Well, what see, and if you had wanted to go the route of just showing the clips, put them in order <laughs> because because I They're was like because we started out with a Midsummer's Night Dream. That was the first thing we saw was showing some of the trick photography that was being being seen from Midsummer's Night Dream, and we get the stuff with Puck teleporting around, um, uh, teleporting the donkey's head onto the onto the dude, all the stuff. We get to see these. Visual effects, okay, and all right, and now we're moving on to um, a different play. Um, I don't remember if it was Julius Caesar or, or Hamlet or what, but um, and so we're now we're moving on. I'm like, all right, and then we just start jumping back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And if you don't know every scene that we're seeing, which I didn't, I just started to get lost, and it all started to kind of blend together. And I feel like I would have been so much more engaged in this style of 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 no commentary if everything had just been presented in order here's everything that has survived from king john here's everything that survived from the 1913 hamlet here's everything that's survived from the 1909 12th night and it's just presented all lined up with each other because then i get to feel like i'm following along with the story and i'm not being kicked around but if you had wanted to go with the route of we're doing this thematically, then I would have appreciated some sort of commentary on why beyond the two title cards that we get at the beginning of each act. Um, and let's talk about, or yeah, and it could, it doesn't even have to be a talking head. It can just be some text on the screen. I mean, yeah, it's a silent film. We yeah. can just read. That's how silent films work is that you read and that you'd have some text showing, um, talking about the tinting or talking about the use of close-ups or something, something. The one of, I would argue, the best, best documentaries I've ever seen on, on films, on movie making, is a, the 2016 uh, documentary called Lumiere. And it is an hour and a half of 108 restored uh, Lumiere shorts, 50-second shorts. And they're all one shot long. And the entire movie is just all of these shorts back to back to back to back with a, with a single um, historian talking about the movies that we're seeing in front of us. And he's talking about them in the present tense. So it's like, look at, this is how this film is revolutionizing this thing in real time talking about uh, a film of someone breaking down a wall. And he talks about how in the theater, the camera, the guy forgets to put the the lens cap back on before rewinding the footage. And so everyone gets to see the wall fall back up. And it's this mind-blowing moment in the history of cinema. And like all these different things and all these little moments 
that we get to see in the context. And if if I would show, if I had to teach people about cinema, I would I would the first two movies I'd show would be Cleo from Five to Seven and The Watermelon Woman, and the third film that I'd recommend that everyone see is Lumiere because of the way that it engages mm. with silent cinema. It doesn't it doesn't patronize it. It doesn't it gives it the appropriate amount of context. It shows how amazing silent cinema is, how enjoyable it is just to watch, and. Mm. Yeah, I feel that this film didn't really commit to either just letting us watch it or giving us context. Fun, funnily enough, one of the first films uh, I'd taken some film classes in college, but when I finally like got into the film school at UCLA, one of if not the very first thing we watched in the sort of overview of film history class. It's a required class; you need to have the general overview. Uh, one of the first was actually a great documentary called Lumiere and Company, uh, which preceded. Lumiere, the documentary you're talking about, by about eh, 20 years, uh, which had a lot of those early films, had a lot of context, and it also had a lot of filmmakers, contemporary filmmakers, using a Lumiere camera to film their own short films, using exactly what was available to the Lumiere brothers. Uh, so I think starting with the Lumieres is uh, almost a rite of passage. Hmm. I... But. Anyway, I, and we're and I should should mention that we're only hearing this historian. We don't actually see. There's no talking head or anything. It's just narration over the shorts, mm-hmm. and so we're just. We could just turn the sound off and just watch 108 4K, gorgeous looking Lumiere shorts. Yeah, and there would that would be enough. And then you can turn the sound on and get context. And this film didn't really provide the context, and it didn't really provide the films either because I don't know. I looked up did research after the fact and some a lot of these films were actually excerpts from films that we have all of i think we have all of that 1921 hamlet um i think we have all of, all of that 1922 um adaptation of othello starring emile jannings you know the nazi in blackface as othello that was really great to see um uh i haven't seen the orson welles uh, adaptation of othello um for the same reason that I'm not interested in seeing the 1922 Othello mm. um, because apparently Orson Welles just does blackface. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that, that was the standard for way too long. The, it's absurd. Uh, the, first, uh, the first black actor to play Othello was Lawrence Fishburne in 1995. That is on film. Okay. Um, I am so glad you confirmed that because I remembered that but I, I didn't have a chance to look that up and confirm that that was true. That's Nonsense. That, that's pretty nuts. And, and of course, you know, on stage it goes back, you know, you know centuries. But uh, in, in terms of like having a black actor play Othello on film, the first time that happened was in 1995. Uh, I, I've seen Anthony Hopkins play Othello uh, for the BBC. It, it was this weird racist tradition. Uh, I, I I see what you you are both saying about how you know not having sort of a context or a narrator to sort of put these clips into a little bit more of an intellectual headspace is frustrating, and it is. But I also I appreciate the way a lot of these images are just sort of washing over you, and how you get to are looking a little bit more closely than you would otherwise if there were a narrator. You'd you're just sort of watching these really famous Shakespearean characters uh, be portrayed as they were portrayed, and you're sort of appreciating it a lot more directly. Uh, going back to, to my previous point, I'm going to bring up a, a film I saw, and, and I reviewed it, called, uh, I think it was called They Will Not, They Shall Not Grow Old, was the title, and it's a Peter Jackson right, Peter film. Peter Jackson film. And uh, what he did was, that's a documentary film as well, but he took uh, existing footage of soldiers in the trenches of World War I, and he colorized the footage, and he added sound, he hired like lip readers to figure out what the soldiers were saying, and he hired actors to reenact what some of their uh, voices were, and then uh, he also... uh, used this really advanced digital technique because uh, film at the time didn't run at 24 frames a second. It run ran a lot faster. So what he did is he spread out... A lot of it was hand-cranked as well, so like it was yeah. inconsistent. 
So what he did is he essentially uh, used this computer program to figure out how that would have looked at 24 frames a second and then used digital technology to essentially fill in the missing frames in between everything so it moved a lot more like a modern film. And additionally, he, he uh, made it, he like mixed it in 3D. So you're seeing this 3D color footage of these actual World War I soldiers and that's neat, but I feel like... And making an older film look and feel like a modern film is robbing us of a much more direct context, which is how people at the time reacted to cameras and technology at the time. And right. I, f I feel like adding too much context is uh, taking away an intimacy that giving us just this wash of clips provides. But when it, when it, the, the thing I'm going to disagree with you here, and I and I I agree with you that dramatically changing footage hmm. uh, is it, I, I I agree with you that that's at the very least questionable. Yeah, um, it's, and, it's a little and probably dodgy. wrongheaded, but it's certainly dodgy and certainly it's it's about trying to capture what that cinema was looking at and not actually the cinema itself, and I think that's that's a problem. Uh, but I think that there's a vast difference between trying to translate this footage into something new and completely transformed mm. and to set people up to see something so that they have the knowledge and the, uh, the, the, the background that people watching them when they came out would have had. I think that's the difference. It's, it's about preserving what it would have been like to experience this at the time as opposed to transforming it completely. Oh, yeah. well, that's, 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 that's completely I, fair, yeah. Yeah, that's, all, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not asking them to completely change it. I'm not asking them to update it or adapt it or add, you know, do-backs to the background or anything like that. <laughs> I, just feel like, I just feel like I know a lot about what you're showing me, and I would like to know more, and this is a great opportunity for you to give me a little bit more. And I'm not asking for too much, and I'm not asking for something transformative. And as, as B pointed out, they're already curating it. It's not like they just gave us a bunch of clips in their entirety. Here's all that we have of this film. They're already deciding what order it's going to go in. They're already making these decisions. So maybe a little bit more context for why those decisions were made and how that makes sense isn't that far out from from isn't that too much to ask yeah and, and for me it's just like i would have i would have loved to see everything that they had sequentially i yeah. would have loved to see all the midsummer's night dreams together or the richard the third bits together like in the order of the play so that i could follow those plays that i haven't seen yet but that i could follow them and as opposed to just because I feel like it really works as a documentation of Shakespeare, but as a documentation of silent cinema, I think that it that it's that it's lacking quite a bit because it's ultimately not really caring about the presentation of the movies. It's just isn't hey, here's all this stuff from Shakespeare that you recognize, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, some of it, yeah, but I would as someone who's I'm I'm not going to call myself I'm no movies silently. But, um, and no one is but movies silently, uh, uh, who is the, the expert on silent cinema. Follow them on Twitter if you aren't already. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 I love watching silent movies. I, watching a silent movie is no different an experience for me than watching a, a, a sound, a talkie. And so I felt like that this film was ultimately as, a documentation of silent films not really doing the silent films justice. It was only trying to explore the Shakespeare aspect. And so, yeah. What I will that's... say, what I will say is this, um, and we're, we've been talking a lot about the staging, uh, but what's actually being staged, what they're actually presenting, regardless of whether we think maybe they could have done it better, curated it better, uh, presented it better, um, I'm still glad it's here, and I do want to make oh, that clear. Yes. I want to make that clear. This is still... It's a short watch. It's a little over an hour. Um, yeah. You're going to see a lot of really amazing footage, a lot of really exciting uh, clips from old movies that, uh, if you were aware of what silent cinema was capable of, you know, it might not blow your mind, but it's still really exciting to look at. And if you didn't, 
you might go, damn, what the, oh, silent cinema, neat. I should check this out some more. Um, and I think all of that's good. Uh, I'm glad that, um, you know, these, these, the footage that they have here, these films, their original films, uh, the actual physical films, they're never going to, to ring those up in a projector and put them in a movie theater again. They're too fragile. Mm. They're too rare. They're too uh, 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 special. Flammable. They're too flammable. F- many of them are too flammable, <laughs> which is very, very true. Yeah, it, a lot it's, of these are old nitrate. Yeah, exactly. So, like, this is the way to see them, which is why I'm a little frustrated that there's no way to see them just kind of all in one chunk per film. But at the very least, here they are, and that's really, really cool. And I think if you have any interest in silent film or Shakespeare, mm-hmm. you know, we can we can complain a little bit about the presentation, but what's being presented is absolutely worth seeing, and I do recommend yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Everyone yeah. should see this because this is an essential document. I think what's, what's going on here is uh, this is a, a film that was presented by the BFI, and I imagine this is something that was shown a lot in the classrooms at the BFI and a lot at lectures at, at the British Film Institute. Uh, so this is intended for essentially British film students. Uh, maybe the reason there's no context is because the intended audience for this would be the students who already have that context, who know a lot about mm-hmm. Shakespeare, because uh, just, I guess, by their dint of being English... And uh, and <laughs> and they have and they know a lot about silent cinema by dint of them being film students and who are, are studying this. So, well, another, also it's, it's also entirely there possible. There might be a teacher talking over it. Yeah, well, that's possible too. Um, it's also possible that, uh, and and this is you know more frustrating a realization than a, a, an enlightening one. But this could be a test. This kind of film. Uh, what do you recognize? What scene is this? Uh, is this sort of a a little sort of Shakespeare students game where they get to point to, you know, act and scene in a particular Shakespearean production? Uh, do they get to uh, sort of point out a particular kind of film stock or shooting style and, you know, how it plays to the exact history of what was going on in cinema, particularly in the year 1908? Um and while that can be a fun game for people who are in the know, it's not fun for people who aren't. So uh, if it does function that way, that's fun for a very small audience, but it's really frustrating for most uh, main audiences who are just sort of, yeah, casual audiences yeah. who aren't going to a lecture at, at the British Film Institute. Yeah. And as we all know, Ovid is geared specifically to casual audiences. Yeah, people who are on right. Ovid are definitely, it's like, I just saw Venom. I want to chase that with, you know, a, yeah. with a Lav Diaz picture. Yeah, I'm going to go watch uh, Vampire Clay now because that's what I'm in the mood for. <laughs> yeah. um, so now, you mentioning that, Whitney, I will admit, is has reframed this film a bit for me because now I'm thinking back to um, um, one of the films that I reviewed on All About Ovid. Um, which I found to be not quite successful in the format that I viewed it, but I had to take it in context with the form that it was technically intended to be viewed. And that's the film uh, The Silence of Mark Rothko, which was a documentary, a 40-minute documentary, that was the kind of documentary, like it was made to be shown in a museum on a loop. And as a result, there's no real structure to it. And it never really, it gives you all of the surface details about the life of, and work of Mark Rothko, the artist, um, without ever giving you a really satisfying structured documentary. Yeah, yeah. And so now I'm kind of thinking about this in those terms as this is a thing that you sit down while you're visiting the BFI and like, oh yeah, and we you watch it for 40 minutes and then you get up and move on to the next exhibit or next class or something. And I'll admit that that has made me like, okay, I, I can see what they are yeah, getting at. Yeah, yeah. But Again, as someone who just comes in, isn't a super hardcore expert on Shakespeare, it was a little, you know, austere. Yeah, the um, and that is uh, an issue with uh, trying to present what are essentially museum pieces in a theatrical context. We're used to films having, you know, deliberate chronology, whereas museum pieces don't necessarily. They take the time right. element out of cinema. 
Uh, and as such, I've seen a lot of shorts that are completely baffling to me because they were meant to be wandered past or, or uh, you know, consumed in small pieces. Um, I, I, you know, I'm a big, uh, I was a big David Lynch obsessive all throughout my 20s. And I mean, I still love David Lynch, but I was like gathering and collecting and trying to get everything I could about David Lynch. Uh, if you've ever seen his short film, Six Figures Getting Sick, uh, mm. you you have to know how it was presented. It was projected against a screen he made himself that had like mannequin heads on it, and the animation was meant to interact with that. And you can't get that when you're just watching it on your TV at home. You have to sort of imagine yourself in the museum setting. Um, I, I think I can imagine myself in a lecture hall watching something like Silent Shakespeare, uh, and so I'm, maybe that's why I'm a little bit more forgiving than, than you two. Yeah. Well, fair. <laughs> yeah, I can live with it. Well, um, does anyone have anything else to say? Because, if we, once again, it's an hour long. It's pretty much a, a series of clips, and I think we've talked uh, in great detail about the presentation and as much as I think we can about the clips. Am I, does anyone else want to add anything before we start well, wrapping this up? I'll, I'll ask uh, I'll ask you something. If if uh, you have a favorite or one that really sort of stood out, ah. was there a whether we have the entire film or not? Was there a, a clip you saw that made you want to see the entire production? Uh, I want to see that whole version of Hamlet. That was a pretty bold. Nineteen uh, thirteen. Uh, yeah, I really want to see the the, the one we're talking about. Where it was uh, it was uh, they made it uh, Hamlet a woman. Uh, that, oh, the nineteen twenty one. Yeah. And apparently, I'm glad that exists because uh, I actually really want to see that. That's a pretty Me bold too. reinterpretation of Hamlet, and I, it makes that's sense. Queer Hamlet, baby. That's a very queer Hamlet, and that's a, that's a not a bad idea for for a Hamlet reinterpretation. And I do want to check that out. That's pretty dang cool. Um, the uh, pretty much everything else I saw was kind of neat to see, but none of it seemed like wow. This is the most like compelling version of King Lear I could imagine. It looks interesting and good, but the one I really would like to pursue more is that Hamlet, yeah. Right, same. I want to see the Asta Nielsen because she's, she she produced the movie. Um, she was like, I'm producing this movie. I'm starring in this movie. I want Hamlet to be a woman. And, um, and so, yeah, and let's, let's, and so I, I, I'm, I'm wanting to track this down, check it out. I don't, who knows if it's even available on YouTube or anywhere, but I couldn't, it, nothing said that it was a lost film. So mm-hmm. unlike a, a large portions of most of, of what we saw. Yeah. I, so I, yeah. I definitely want to see that Hamlet. Um, there was a few clips of what looks to be an incredibly funny version of 12th night. Um, a big issue with mm-hmm. a lot of productions I've seen of 12th night is they kind of forget that it's a comedy. Like they roll in with a lot of the darker elements of that play. Uh, hmm. Sometimes, you know, the, the, like the queerness is in there, but at the same time, there's uh, this, the last production I saw, they uh, gender flipped the Malvolio character. But if you know the hmm. play, you'll know that the, the Malvolio character uh, declares his love for Viola and is mocked and beaten and thrown in prison if you give that part to a lesbian, it looks really bad now that the queer character is being mm-hmm. mocked and beaten for falling in love and expressing herself. So, um, yeah, it turned into this like weird, like meditation on homophobia that didn't really work so to be, well. To be fair, that was always. I mean, I mean, granted, that's infinitely worse, but it's it that was always a really mean spirited subplot. Yeah, like, yeah Malfolio yeah, was a dick, but he didn't deserve that. Uh, and and Malvolio is the only one, like, in most Shakespeare plays, when the, the villain is punished, they're either murdered on stage, or they're, uh, we talk about how we're going to punish them off stage. Like, if you yeah. think of uh, Don John in uh, Much Ado About Nothing, uh, at the end of the oh, play, they said, we, we, we caught him, here he is. Take him off stage, we'll deal with him later, we're going to have a party now. It's like, we're not going to see him be punished and humiliated. Um but the the silent version I saw like had all of the melodrama intact. It's a silent film. Everybody's sort of playing it really, really big, and that looks really amusing. I'd love to see that entire mm-hmm. production of Twelfth Night. Hmm. You know, it's it, yeah. it's not particularly profound, but it does look like a like a body, almost Marx Brothers ish version of that play, and I, that's something I'm interested in. Right, That's with cool. Malvolio showing off his le- his tights and his yeah, the, legs. The, the, the yellow, yellow, yellow tights. Yellow tights that are cross-gartered. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Well, um, B. Peterson, thank you so much for joining us for this. Um, tell people yeah. a little bit more about all about Ovid, uh, what, what sort of episodes you've done before. And I know it's going monthly now, but uh, I want people to know where they can find it so they can learn more about Ovid stuff since we don't cover it regularly. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, this is this is was really fun to, to do this Ovid dive. I saw that one of the other films in the poll was uh, Fresh Kill. Um, which is a, a 90s uh, lesbian sci-fi film. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched that yesterday, and uh, if you'd like to know what I think about it, then you can wait till the end of October when I do my episode with Whitney on All About Ovid, Ooh. which you can... F- yeah, um, <laughs> it's the, the Screens Margins Network, which is now essentially essentially wrapped up. I've been texting with Mark, and we might, we're thinking about maybe down the road doing another series of Friends of Dorothy, which is a series on the various collaborators with Dorothy Arzner. Um, if you go to the screens margins on anywhere, you can find, I've got it set up in seasons now for Apple podcasts where you can, I essentially, I would recommend that you just start with a season. What I've got is season one, which is our episodes, our recordings for my dinner with my dinner with my dinner with Andre, <laughs> in which we talk about the film, my dinner with Andre, as well as the podcast, uh, my dinner with my dinner with Andre. Uh, I did that with uh, Harold, Anna, and uh, Mark co-host, just talking about the movie. And from there, you can go to uh, talk. We did a series on new releases. Um, with I did with Anna. Uh, we disagreed a lot, and so that was fun. But one film that I would recommend, the episode of that uh, uh, series that I would recommend y'all listen to is the, our episode on Shiva Baby. Um, uh, the new uh, Emma Seligman film, which the two, the both of y'all, if y'all haven't seen it, it's one of the best of the year. Like hands down, mm-hmm. Emma Seligman, yeah. Rachel Sennott, they're about to be stars. Uh, we, we, it's on, I think it's on HBO Max. Yeah, we, we both missed it. It's, it's super short. I, I have it written on a list of films that I I need to see before the end of the year. So and there's all that's already a pretty long list. But yes, I I'm aware. Yeah, it's I I want to yeah, see it. Brilliant queer film. Brilliant horror comedy, almost, in how tense it gets. But uh, yeah, that's uh, Fresh from the Margins, the new releases podcast uh, with Harold. I did several series. Um, I did one on Rainer Werner Fassbinder and Lucrecia Martel. Um, and then our we had to cut it short. Um, but our series on Frederick Wiseman, we got through everything that he directed in the 21st century. That podcast, I think, is probably pretty freaking impeccable. Um uh, just because of the co- amazing conversations and the amazing films we talked about, uh, you can I recommend starting with our episodes on City Hall, uh, Boxing Gym, and then The Last Letter, which is actually a fiction film that Frederick Wiseman did, a monologue film. And then, yeah, I did with Mark on uh, Dorothy Arzner and Dorothy Arzner collaborators. But yeah, all about Ovid. It's Whitney and I. We talk about stuff that we've seen on Ovid. It's pretty straightforward. We've talked about Love Diaz and Simon Lang. We did that with Dave White. You can go listen to our episode that we did with Dave White. Um, yeah, just it's it was a really great nine months, and this is September. Well, technically, it's October first now. Happy Ghastly Tober, y'all. <laughs> um, and it was a great nine months of of podcasts and work on underseen films and filmmakers, and it's all there for y'all to listen to. Um, we had a spike in listenership where we had five hundred new listeners in the span of three days. And we got a thousand listens in like three days, and now the spike has dropped off, and we're back to like one or two plays a day. But um, anyway, well, what, what, a, what an I amazing! I don't really know how that happened. Yeah, it was really <laughs> wild to see. I was like, "Hold, what? What's happening? How am I having five, like, fifty plays on this random episode of my podcast?" And yeah, anyway, but uh, yeah, so that's the screens margins. That's where you can find me. I'm I'm taking a step back from podcasts and. Uh, and Twitter and all that jazz to just, you know, mm. chill essentially. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I had to, I had to do one more episode with Bibbs and Whitney, you know, oh, full no, circle. My first podcast, but, we were talking about queer films, um, last September and yeah, now we're back. But golly, I, I so appreciate that you're taking time away from Twitter because Twitter is, is a sewer and, uh, it, I admire the people who can climb out and remind themselves that there's a sun up there. It's like it's like the metaphor of the cave, but you're in a sewer. Plato's yeah, cave. Plato's yeah. cave, but uh, yeah, rather than seeing like shadows from torchlight, it's just like methane fart explosions. It's just the worst thing. <laughs> uh, 
So yeah, get out, get out, kill. Yeah, the, the bumper sticker used to say "kill your television." Now it's you know, turn off Twitter. Yeah, more power to you, really. And then that it, I've I've done that before, and it's been amazing for my mental health. So I highly recommend it. But uh, I will say you'll be missed in uh, the podcast scape, uh, and I think you'll be missed on yeah. Twitter too. But uh, everyone deserves a break and uh, take as long yeah, a break who knows, as you want. I might you know? I might come back for a podcast oh, or a tweet or two, or not. Randomly. It's up to you. Make be whatever makes you happy. I'll just know that I really really liked your work, and it's always been a pleasure to. Uh, help guide people to it whenever we could. Mm. So um, it's again, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. And uh, um, yeah, I, and 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 again, I'm glad you're still doing the occasional thing with Whitney. That makes me happy. Um, yeah, watch Ovid's guys. Yeah. It's got. I mean, it's so freaking awesome. It's my favorite <laughs> streaming service. It's yeah. Well, well, uh, well uh, next yeah. time on Critically Reclaimed, we're actually going to be looking at a brand new streaming service. Uh, we're going to be looking at Kino Cult. K-I-N-O-C-U-L-T. I'm excited about this one. Uh, Kino Lorber is uh, one of the better uh, home video services uh, for niche programming. They do a lot of uh, relatively obscure uh, older movies or uh, movies that, you know, the licensing has been lost. They put out a great new edition of it. And uh, they've put out a new streaming service. It's free with ads, uh, so not unlike Tubi. Uh, and it's all dedicated almost entirely to their cult collection, which is a lot of horror movies, a lot of hygiene films, mm-hmm. uh, uh, some various cult oddities from various different genres. Uh, and so if you head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, everyone, regardless of what tier they're at, uh, gets to vote for next week's episode mm-hmm. of Critically Reclaimed. And the options for next week, uh, again, all on Kino Cult. They are the Astro Zombies, uh, which I believe are zombies who play for the Astros team. That's a a Ted V. Michaels film. Ted V. Michaels is a a cult luminary. Nice. Uh, The Erotic Rites of Frankenstein. Uh, yeah, as opposed to the uh, 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 the regular rights. Well, the the regular rights of Frankenstein, which are just sort of just like sort of there. Uh, and uh, Hercules in the Haunted World, uh, which is a Mario Bava Hercules film where Hercules goes to hell and also fights vampire Christopher Lee. Uh, hmm, and how a, gay do you think it's going to be oh, if we watch it? Probably somewhat. And uh, the uh, British horror film The Asphyx, A-S-P-H-Y-X, which is about uh, a British aristocrat who decides to use uh, film technology to capture the spirit of death itself. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, we, so we were, uh, we'll review whichever one of those our patrons vote for. Yeah, we, we were leaning more in the, the horror direction, but uh, I was surprised and, and gleeful to learn that on Kino Cult, they have uh, the 1940s film Mom and Dad, uh, which was a, a hygiene health film that I only know about because of John Waters, uh, but evidently this was a really frank talk about sex uh, right in the middle of the code, and because it was an educational film, they could show nudity and talk, fr- uh, frankly, about sexual matters. Uh, and there's even a birth on camera. We get to see a, a baby being born. And because this was maybe the only source of nude bodies in cinema available to mainstream audiences at the time it was highly eroticized and it was incredibly popular because of how many how much of essentially the raincoat brigade was going to see this film uh and john waters has talked about how weird it was that like health pictures of people with vd and birth footage was considered like the most erotic thing at the time and it was lost for a long time, and wouldn't you know it, Kino Cult restored it, so you can see it now. Uh, what a wonderful thing! I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to watch that one. Awesome. So uh, again, you can vote uh, for any of the films, not that one, uh, but uh, the <laughs> other films that that we talked about uh, on uh, at uh, at our on our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network, uh, where we have a lot of other exclusive shows, uh, shows about Star Trek, the Academy Awards, Batman commentary tracks, a bunch of stuff. 
Uh, and uh, thank you, every one of our patrons. Uh, thank you, everybody who's listening. If you want to talk about anything we discussed on today's episode, you're more than welcome to send us an email. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. box? Uh, because I can't seem to remember. Uh, well, we have a P.O. box. Send us a physical letter. We love to get physical letters. Uh, just write into Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah, we might read your emails or your handwritten letters or your printed out letters or whatever you want to send us on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Sorry we didn't have one this week. It got really, really busy. Uh, but we'll be back next week. Don't worry. Back on that horse. Uh, and, of course, we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, I was at Blue Gray Closet. <laughs> I was going to ask. I was going to ask if you wanted to even mention it. Um, but, um, and yeah, so again, thank you so much, B. Peterson. You're, you're, you're a, f- a true friend of the show, and we'll, we'd, we'd love to have you on anytime. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Just, if you want to have me on randomly, you know, randomize it, who knows? Yeah. yeah might, might be fun. Um, I, I know that you guys, you don't have like an outro, and it's kind of like the joke with this podcast that you don't have an intro or an outro. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I have an outro for you guys. Can I test it out? You know what? It's, it's all yours. All right. Well, I just, yeah, thank you all for listening to Critically Reclaimed, the show where we, the critics, reclaim the film chosen by you, the allies. Critic, ally, reclaimed. (laughs) Adorable. (laughs) 